Can you please repeat that word for me that you just said? I'm not sure which word it was. Spectrum? <laughs> no. Maximalism? Maximalize? <laughs> sure. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we try to make doing your homework actually kind of fun. Uh, as you well know, we assign you homework, I assume you've already done it, uh, and then we talk about it kind of like a cool podcast book club. I am your co-host, Pete Romberg, and today I am... Oh, I've kind of got nothing interesting going on except for I'm in the middle of like 10,000 weddings happening right now, so I'm just like in in wedding season. Um, joining me, as always, is my co-host. Uh, I'm Martha Sullivan, and both practically and professionally, today I am a child wrangler. Mm, uh, I can sympathize, and also can sympathize is our uh, third chair for this episode, uh, my friend and former roommate, uh, Sarah Shaw. Uh, Sarah, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sarah. I had the distinct pleasure of living with Pete Romberg for three years, and he had a pretty remarkable influence on my pop culture life, so I'm really excited to be on this podcast. Welcome, Sarah. Yay. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself or just sort of roll through? Oh, sure. I'll say a note. So when I was living with Pete, I was teaching, thus the sympathy with the child wrangling. Um, and now I wrangle adults instead, um, and sometimes get wrangled as an education policymaker um, working for the state of Illinois. Cool. Well, that is a fair enough segue uh, into our pop culture credentials. These are the things that we have consumed most frequently in terms of pop culture, not edited for uh, basically quality, guilty pleasure factor, whatever you want to say. Um, we're going to start with Martha. Um. For me, uh, I have a house guest coming over this weekend, which means that I uh, realized as I came home today that I should probably clean up our guest room so that it's like fit for human uh, occupancy. Uh, so I was listening to some podcasts while I was picking up right before we started recording. Uh, specifically, I was listening to Pop Rocket which is one of my very favorite pop culture review podcasts. I may or may not have talked about it on the show before, um, but basically uh, Pop Rocket is a survey of pop culture. Today they were talking about the upcoming royal wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, and also the uh, incredibly wonderful Lifetime film that they made about their meeting and their courtship. Uh, pop Rocket allows me to enjoy certain things in pop culture without actually needing to experience them myself. Uh, so now I don't actually feel the need to watch the Lifetime movie, having heard uh, people who are much funnier and smarter than I am talk about it uh, themselves. Is a McElroy involved in the Pop Rocket at all? No, although it is on the same network that hosts all of the McElroy shows. Ah, uh, gotcha. Uh, a comedian named Guy Branham hosts Pop Rocket, who is incredibly funny and also has a book coming out soon called My Life as a Goddess, uh, which I, it's not out yet, so I haven't read, but knowing how funny he is in real life, I, pe I feel safe just giving him a uh, free plug on that. Cool. 
Um, normally, I'd go to Sarah next, but I, Sarah, I see what yours is, and I want to, like, have have feelings about that uh, in a second, so I'm going to quickly do mine uh, first instead. Um, so last week, uh, or, or last episode, Martha's pop culture credential was the Childish Gambino music video for This Is America. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, go see it, because it's amazing. What are you doing? Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, my pop culture credential, I kind of cheated on because it's a minute long, and I played it intentionally right before uh, we started this call. Um, some genius person mashed, mashed up Call Me Maybe with that video, and it works far too well. Um, just like a minute's worth of Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe, and the opening of This Is America is a perfect audio-visual mashup. Um, so I'd highly recommend you go, like, literally just search, like, Call Me Maybe This Is America, and you'll find it. Um, it's great. Carly Rae Jepsen is a supremely underappreciated artist. Canada's Poet Laureate. For I had real? a driveway moment no. <laughs> the first time. <laughs> I had a driveway he moment don't... the first time that I heard Call Me Maybe. <laughs> he don't play me like that. I just had like to listening to it. I... Uh... <laughs> Calling her Canada's Poet Laureate is definitely, like, an inside joke for me, because I, I fully, like, she should be. Um, <laughs> but she's not. Uh, all right, well, speaking of musicians, but not underrated ones, Sarah, what is your pop culture credential? I'm so curious to hear what your feelings are on this, Pete. Um, so the band Heim came to Chicago uh, last weekend. They played two sold-out shows, and I was there on Friday night, and it was an awesome show. Uh, these are three sisters who just rock, like literally up on stage are rocking. Um, and it was at the Aragon Ballroom, which I think has a very cool space. Um, and they filled the entire space, fans filled the entire space. And one of the thoughts I had was just like, I mean, it, it's funny where gender biases catch you when you kind of least expect it. And I wasn't going in saying like, oh, I'm going to watch these fierce, fabulous women, like, tear up a ballroom. Uh, I don't need proof that women can rock. And yet, watching them, I was like, if anyone needed proof that women could rock, here it is right here, uh, because they were fabulous. Uh, my, my feelings on this are a, a mixture of excitement, happiness, and rampant jealousy, uh, which is probably exactly <laughs> what you were expecting them to be, so... I was trying to remember whether this had been a situation like so for for our listeners, uh, Pete is probably responsible for a solid 30 percent of all music that I listen to at this point because he would just have records playing in the background all the time while we were lesson planning um, and they kind of seep into your skin. And so I was trying to remember whether Haim was a band that I had turned you on to or the other way around. It might have been a mutual situation. Um I, that might have been, like, yeah, like, two independent discoveries. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, I, I do have only to, for us. I do have to drill down a little bit, though, and ask, have you not consumed any other media since that concert? So I definitely procrastinated on my homework. Oh, yeah, yeah. Homework uh, definitely doesn't count meaning, because we all do it, right, like, minutes before. Right. Meaning that most of my pop culture consumption since then has been, like, somewhat... Uh, alarmedly realizing how many pages I had to read before today. 
so there has there has been very limited pop culture consumption since then. Outside That's fair. of homework. Yesterday morning, I had a realization where I that I could either mow my lawn or watch Dogma, but that both of those things were not going to. Be <laughs> uh, I felt good because I could. I read The Crucible in a night, and I was like, "Yeah, still got it. I can read a play, which should only take a couple hours in a night." Hooray! Um, well, that all being said, that seems like a great segue into our free homeworks. Uh, unless, Martha, you want to jump in for the Haim concert. No, I'm sorry. I don't have any opinions on Haim. I be, just because I don't listen to a lot of music, and I'm sure that I have heard them, but I can't summon up an audio memory of what their music is. So I have failed you both, and I apologize. You'd probably like them. Um, I'm sure that I would. I just... And I'm sure that I have heard them before. I am just kind of music dumb. So, also, I've just been listening to the Janelle Monet record on like repeat <gasps> it's so recently. Good. That's a good <laughs> use of time. Oh. <laughs> that was my credential last time. Uh, and and as our listeners know, Sarah, the undercurrent of this episode is I get Martha to listen to music, and she gets me to read YA books, uh, and then we both grow as people. Or hate 13 reasons why depending on the situation i was gonna say mostly it means that sometimes pete gets mad at me <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you're both stronger as a result the friendship grows although sometimes he makes me watch movies that i don't want to watch so yes, it, it evens out this is true all right well we had a really great segue and then we ruined it so we're just gonna shoehorn this segue in um we're gonna talk about our homeworks uh before we do that though I'm just going to go through and bullet point the topics that we want to make sure that we cover. As you well know, we might either be covering these uh, specifically or just in the conversation of our homeworks. So, first, we're going to be talking about what virtue is. That's the theme of this podcast. It's the second part of our Vice and Virtue episodes. Probably yeah, should have mentioned that at the time. Did we actually introduce our, uh, our topic at the top of the episode? I don't think we did. Uh, All so, right. Yeah. Well, listeners, <laughs> we're talking about is. virtue. It's the second part of our two-parter about vice uh, and virtue. Um, so we're going to be talking about what is virtue. We're going to be asking what makes a character virtuous. Um, we're going to be looking at the religious angle. All three of our homeworks, uh, either consciously or not, had a religious aspect to that virtue. Uh, we might be discussing whether there can be atheistic virtue um, or agnostic virtue. Um, we're going to talk about how our characters abuse the idea of virtue, or possibly use them to their own ends. Maybe that's the same thing. Um, and finally, do justice and virtue have anything to do with each other? So that's where we're going in this conversation. Um, I kind of don't have anyone specifically slated to go first, so if anyone wants to jump in... Uh... Let's start with... Uh, let's start with Sarah's. Cool. I feel like that may make the most sense. It's it's the one that's sort of the most honestly virtuous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, we'll do the straight shooter before, like, the, the curveball. The subversions. Play. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so, Sarah, give us a quick rundown of your homework, and then we'll just talk about it. Sure. So, the homework that I said is a book called Peace Like a River, it's by Leif or Leif Anger. Um, takes place in 1960s 
Minnesota slash North Dakota. Um, but it's it feels a little out of time. I'm I'm super curious what you both thought of it because I um I remember reading it in college and kind of being struck by it feeling like a bygone era, even though you know, the 60s are not particularly far out of reach. Um, the basic premise is that there is a family, the Lands, um, dad, Jeremiah Land, older brother, Davy Land, our narrator is Reuben Land, and then his little sister is Swede Land. Um, and Davy, uh, through a, a series of escalating, I don't even know what to call, what to call it. It like, uh, starts with two boys who who are trying to assault his girlfriend uh, and they start escalating back and forth, trying to get each other. And uh, it culminates with Davy shooting both boys and killing them both. Um, Davy goes to jail. He breaks out from jail. He goes on the run. The family goes to find him. Um, and it has this kind of curiously tragic, but maybe not ending. Um, and a thread throughout the whole book Um and why I suppose it falls more in a straight shooting virtue mode um, is that uh, faith and God are both very present. Uh, Jeremiah Land, the, the dad, um, works minor miracles, which are which are accepted within this world, but not unremarked upon. So Reuben, our narrator, describes himself as a witness um, and, and acknowledges that these are things that shouldn't be happening. And yet they do kind of still in the same world as our world. Um, I, I, I would actually be interested in hearing from both of you kind of what you thought of when you thought of the genre of this novel, because it's in some ways like very grounded in realism and in other ways flirting with magical realism, except via God. <laughs> Rereading it, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where to put this. Um, M miraculous yeah. realism? The uh. Miraculous realism. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I admit I did have some trouble with this book, mostly because I couldn't figure out what the book was supposed to be about. Like, a lot of things happen in it, but I couldn't quite pin down what was, like, the main action because at first I was like, oh, it's a book about this guy who performs miracles, but it isn't really. And then I was like, oh, it's a book about um, like what Davy does and um, like that, the process of indicting him. And then it wasn't really about that either. And then I don't know. I, I'm not I'm still not really sure, like even having finished it, I, I'm not quite sure what my takeaway from the book was supposed to be. So that that's interesting um, because it like I I liked this with some caveats, um, but I agree with you, Martha, that like I, I would agree with that assessment. But it reminded me a lot for like weird and not direct reasons that I can quite explain of um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is a book that I've read like three or four times now at like different stages in my life, and I'm long overdue to reread it. Uh, and that's another book like set in the 60s of like a father-son sort of relationship, but from the father's standpoint, and also not really about things, but also about things. So I, I guess I was just sort of more like 
as soon as I sort of tuned into that wavelength, I was much more okay with it not being about anything. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I didn't like it not being about stuff. It was just, it was hard because I, it made it hard to kind of settle into the right frame of mind to be reading it. Hmm. Um, especially because it is, it is so unlike anything else that I normally read. I, I will say this. All three of us have some connection to Minnesota. Uh, it feels deeply upper Midwestern of, of a book. Um, <laughs> the descriptions of like the winter and everything, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like this is, you know, Sarah, I think you had described it in an email as like a Midwestern version of um, To Kill a Mockingbird. And I was mm-hmm. thinking about that. It's like To Kill a Mockingbird is so Southern uh, in its own way. Mm-hmm. And this was so like upper midwestern in its own way you're you're noting like the kind of lack of centrality or even i mean there's a plot but it's a a rambling plot and i think Pete, to your point like part of it was i enjoyed spending time in the world like it was almost like i didn't need things to be happening all the time because i the characters were very real to me um in a kind of wondrous way like i could be at the foot of Swede's bed or Ruben's bed, like listening to this nine-year-old and 11-year-old just create worlds from the, for themselves. Um, and I wonder how much of this has to do with it being a debut novel, novel where a, an author is still kind of learning all the different parts of, of stitching together or something. Um, but it is that sense of not only like very vivid characters, but also a very vivid world that I think you're right. Um, part of what drew me to it was this is a place that I not only felt connected to, but also wanted to feel connected to. Well, and I guess I should clarify, like, I didn't, I didn't think, I didn't have any trouble figuring out, like, what was happening. Like, the, the prose is very clear. Um, there's a lot of clarity in, like, events and descriptions. There's a lot of really beautiful descriptive language. What I, what I had trouble with was kind of figuring out what the point of the story was, like, what the, um what the author wanted me to take away from it at the end. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, in terms of like what the events of the book are, um, you know, I, I did think that that was all very clear and very purposeful. I just sort of wasn't sure what we were building towards. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and this was also a book where the, the climax comes very quickly and then there's almost no denouement. Uh, it's not quite as bad as like a Neil Stevenson novel where like he doesn't know, he thinks that the climax is the end of the book. Uh, so he never has a denouement, but like this, like the, the, the <laughs> like I, I was at 90% on my book and I'm like, oh, okay. So like happily ever after, what? Uh, I was going to say, Pete, I don't down. agree with that. I, I think the climax of the book comes at the end when their father gets, when everyone yeah. gets shot. Yeah, that's what I'm saying but mm-hmm. there is a coda like there's a there's a one chapter long coda after that oh I, i'm sorry i thought you just said that you thought the climax came at the beginning of the book oh no 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 he, uh, he did that is that is oh. what the record will show okay great well when i edit this i'll just the <laughs> end uh there now i fixed it <laughs> uh right so i meant to say that the climax came at like the very end with only a very short oh. coda yeah, I almost did not understand what was happening for a while. Like when it when it first happened, I um 
yeah, it took them returning to the the events for me to be like, oh, oh, that's where we are. Okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I admit I was a little disappointed because I think the story I was the most interested in was the story of Jeremiah and the miracles that he performed. And that ended up almost being beside the point. Mm-hmm. So I I did miss a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. No, I, and I think you're totally right, Martha, about the like what's kind of a centering theme or what are things driving toward not in a plot way you're right in a like in a thematic way really um and that piece about the miracles it's like the world building never ended you know instead of world Mm -hmm. building being at the beginning and then okay you've established and now what's happening or what's you know what do we do with it it just you know, we're just still in the airstream. We're just still driving across the Badlands. And there were like these beautiful moments within that. And that that's where I got the feeling of, oh, I just want to stay and hang out here for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a curious thing thinking about, okay, what is, you know, here's a, a set of 300 pages, kind of w- what made us decide to start here and end there. Yeah, in terms of, in terms of orienting it within our theme today, I did think it was interesting because I feel like Peace Like a River is almost about people trying to figure out what it means to be virtuous. Mm-hmm. And our other stories are very much about people who are assured in their own virtue. <laughs> for good or for ill. For good or for ill, or for accurate or inaccurate. Um, but I do, I did feel that like the, the characters in Peace Like a River are all sort of consumed in one way or another with figuring out how to be virtuous, what it means to be virtuous. Um, and that, that makes a lot of sense considering that the, the narrator is like 11 and is grappling with some pretty big issues. Um, so it's, it's sort of like the perfect age and place to be in that position. Yeah. There's a real innocence around it. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that, that that's what you care about. And I think it also is part of what gives it the, the the novel this kind of burnished old timey feel to it for me because it's not really a modern thing that we think about like oh I want to be a virtuous person okay what does that look like in fact I'd say most of the time if we were to hear someone described as virtuous these days I would look askance at them be like mm-hmm. are you a goody two shoes or do you think that you're virtuous and therefore you are actually either damned already or um, going to make me feel like I'm damned. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and part of, I mean, in, in terms of like where personal background comes into play here. So like I would identify as a liberal Christian and it's very rare that I find pieces of pop culture that treat religion with like as just a part of life without needing to make a statement about it all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what what made me think of Peace Like a River for an episode on virtue is just like a different way of thinking about how religion or how the desire to be good can play out in our lives in a way that I actually think, you know, for I, I think that the author treats really respectfully. I, I appreciated that here the religion like suffused everything, but was neither preachy nor judgy. Um as somebody who is like 
uh, a former Catholic who is fascinated by religion but is not religious himself. I'm always like, I'm interested in artists who can grapple with religion and faith without making me feel guilty or awkward about them doing so. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that seems like a good end point unless we have any final comments on it. Uh, I guess the last thing I just want to say is that... Um... You know, I, I just talked about how I appreciated that the characters in this book are all sort of trying to figure out what it means to be virtuous. I think the one exception to that is Swede, who is so convinced of her father and her family's virtue, but in like a really refreshing and honest way. She never doubts. She never doubts the goodness of her family, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> Because she's nine, and that part feels very okay for me, she was almost the, the part of the book I found most frustrating because I found her so unrealistic. Um, if if she were, a, like, she was too precocious or something, like, she just felt did too have, old for her can own can age. Can I tell you something? Yes. Can I tell you something? All right. She is you at nine. <laughs> like, you're talking about her being unrealistic. <laughs> this child is you. I, I mean, so. Like, that, oh my gosh. It, I'm never going to read her again the same it, way. In many ways, that's probably true. But in other ways, she felt a little too old to be nine in terms of, like, living in the world. Not in terms of, like, writing her, her um... Uh, you know, Sunny Sundown stories or whatever. Like, that all felt legit. But, like, the, the, the way she was, like, navigating the world felt a little old for her years. Um, so, I, I can see that. However, she's also the only woman in an all-male household mm. living near the Great Plains in a not-altogether-hospitable environment. Um, I think, like, some of our our current notions of childhood are fairly modern um and the various weights that were placed on her from an early age it seems like i think well while they do not explain the entirety of her precociousness i think they do more to get there um than if i'm thinking of like my wonderful 10 year old neighbor who i don't think was you know is is making all of the meals for her parents that is well, a really good and point. I think, yeah, I think her precociousness is balanced out by her idealism. Uh, because we do get some pretty vivid scenes of her throwing tantrums when things do not work out the way that she thinks that they should. Or when she feels that she has been treated unfairly. Or when somebody has disappointed her. Mm-hmm. So I think that her, her tantrum behavior did come across as very uh, realistic to me for a, a nine-year-old girl. <laughs> that that checks out. Speaking of tantrum behavior, uh, we're gonna sort of go up the chain in terms of uh, virtuosity to uh, my homework assignment, which was the Arthur Miller play, The Crucible. Bonus points if you went and watched the Daniel Day-Lewis Winona Ryder movie version, um, which... While I did not watch it for this week, I definitely was thinking of that end scene when I was reading the final act of the play. Um, Because that's what John Proctor sounds like. He just sounds like Daniel Day-Lewis. So for those who somehow got through high school English without reading The Crucible, uh, it's about the Salem witch trials and also about communism and the Red Scare and McCarthyism. 
Um, specifically, we have, uh, I don't know, girls uh, saying that people are witches in Puritan Salem, Massachusetts. John Proctor is our protagonist. He is accused of witchcraft. Um, people are, are, you know, he they try to convince him at the end to... Uh, uh, admit that he did witchcraft in order to sully the names of other good people in town. He almost does, then he recants. Uh, there's good morals all around. Again, you've all read this in high school, so it's fine. Um, what'd you guys think about rereading it with this specific lens? So specifically through this lens, mm-hmm. um, I I thought it was interesting how very precisely virtue gets wielded as a weapon Mm -hmm. in this story um like you have the the virtue of the girls who are making the accusations basically being the bedrock on which the arguments for these uh innocent people being witches it's the bedrock on which it rests and it's a total sham so the the like that so much of the testimony comes down to like someone's good word and whose word is worth more than others and um that you know that that's kind yeah, of just, how it starts but eventually like sort of the whole town gets wrapped up in in the madness of it well but you're still talking about people being accused by virtue of the weight of one person's word against another. Cause once mm-hmm. you've been accused that that's kind of it. Like there's no way out at that point, except to confess, which is a lie because witchcraft isn't real. Right. Um, so then you're, you're talking about weighing, you're talking about weighing one lie against another and whose whose word is worth more and the only determining factor there is like oh well these girls are innocent um which yeah we all know is not true (laughs) right um i think that that sense of like weighing people's words against each other uh is resonating with me because thinking about the crucible through the lens of virtue, I was really thinking about like how, um, how to say this, like the the, the speech that struck with, stuck with me is when they come to talk to Elizabeth Proctor's wife and they ask her, like, I forget what the exact wording is. It's like, are you a virtuous woman or are you a woman of God? And she says, yes, with, um, with conviction. And it just made me, think about how like I can't imagine saying that right like I try to be a good person but if if you came up to me on the street and said are you a virtuous person are you a woman of God I'd be like nope I am far too aware of like imperfections right and this idea that virtue is something binary um and therefore like that like that's what sets up the scales on which you could weigh somewhat one person's word against another, because you can label one person as the virtuous person and then thereby their word against someone else must label the other person as a non-virtuous person. Uh, it's just like a different set of rules. And, and that sort of comes around at the end where, where Elizabeth's virtue is used almost like against Proctor, where we're like she for entirely reasonable reasons, um, 
and which are ca called out for being entirely reasonable, like, lies about her husband, uh, like, being a lecher, like, or, you know, cheating on her. And, like, right. everyone involved is like, no, it's super reasonable that she would lie about that if she didn't know that he'd already confessed. Um, but because she's a virtuous woman, it's like, well, her word is better than his word, so that's all out the window. Yeah, well, there's no then, concept that there might be exceptions. Yeah, and then you get into this idea where you're weighing one kind of honesty against another, or mm -hmm. not one kind of honesty, but, like, one kind of virtuous action against another. Like, is it more virtuous to tell the truth or to lie in service of protecting somebody? Um like which is the which is the more virtuous action and does it even matter when you're going to be punished for it one way or another because at the end of the day the the virtue of the characters involved doesn't actually matter like it is so important to or it it is claimed to be the most important thing and then at the end of the day it it doesn't matter mm -hmm. Right. Which is, like, the most nihilistic thing ever. Because I mean, it, it's a fun land of theocracy and legalism and, like, quote-unquote morality. So, like, the, the morality might sometimes be subservient to the, the legalism. So do we, think that, do we think that Miller makes an argument for what does matter? Like, I go back to that, that final speech by John Proctor, which I think is just one of the best theatrical speeches ever written. So like you, I, yeah, you I, cannot have my name. I, I agree, because it is Daniel Day-Lewis uh, shouting it in my ear. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I chose this specifically because of that scene. Um, Martin and I have had discussions about it and about whether Proctor is actually virtuous, whether that act of his is a virtuous act, because while it redeems him... And, like, we as the audience know that it also redeems, like, um, Rebecca Nurse and all the other, uh, like, good names in town who have been accused of witchcraft. The whole reason that they want uh, Proctor to confess is because they figure if they get one person to confess, then, like, all the good named people can sort of be under, like, a shadow of doubt. But if none of them confess, then it's like, well, we just hung a lot of people that the town likes and isn't just the crazy woman on the side of the road. And and that's, like, gonna lead to, to chaos and anarchy and rioting. Um, so, like, we as the audience understand that that's, like, a good thing that he's doing from a, like, civil perspective. But that's irony because the characters don't know that. So, so the argument is, like, he is doing it. He is virtuous because he is saving his own name and, like, not telling a, like, not telling a lie about himself. Not damning himself. But on the other hand, he's kind of damning his family. Um because he's going to go off to hang while his wife and children get to just deal with those consequences. And he's sort of not taking those consequences, you, you know, like he's not thinking about them when he makes that choice. Um, so is that a virtuous act? Here's what I think. I think from Arthur Miller's perspective, it is. Mm -hmm. I think that the point of that speech at the end is that if, if Proctor confesses, falsely he'll have his life but it's it's an at what cost kind of question mm -hmm. and i i right. do think that we are supposed to take from that that it's ultimately heroic of him to recant his confession um to save 
his name and to go to God as an honest man. Mm-hmm. Regardless of kind of the implications of that, um, I, I do think that in the eyes of the author and in the eyes of the play, that that is supposed to be taken as um, an act of, of personal sacrifice and heroism that he is willing to give up his life for the sake of his honor and his honesty. Totally agree. Whether I agree with that is different. Um, but I do think that that's the point that the play is ultimately trying to make. It makes me think of shame. Like is the, when you are not virtuous or when your virtue is stripped from you is what you're like, what are you left with? And I'm hypothesizing shame. Um, because Pete, like playing out that, what you, what you postulated about, you know, if he, he sacrifices himself, but he's also sacrificing his family, but also like, I don't know how long he and Elizabeth would have lasted if he hadn't, right? Mm-hmm. Like well, divorce, this is the right Divorce moment. was not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. In, in Puritan New England, they would have lasted until one of them died. Right, right. Uh, but like they have this, they do have this reunion and this reconciliation and part of Proctor's motivation is, is wanting to see himself reflected in the eyes of his wife as an honorable man again. Um, and if he lives and is taking care of their family and of her, there's a price there as well. I'm not saying that it's a price that is low, that is any higher than like losing his life, but mm-hmm. it's not a clean trade-off. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, especially here in terms of virtue of like, I, I completely agree uh, that Miller thinks it is the virtuous choice and the honorable choice. Um, but it does add that wrinkle of like, e- even if the author thinks it's virtuous or the character like stepping back from it, can there be virtue with, like, I, I think we can all say that like, you can be virtuous and self-sacrifice, but it sort of adds a wrinkle to the virtue if you're sacrificing others as well for your virtue. Um, I was going to say, oh, the, sure. the flip side to that is that if he if he had continued with the false confession, there's a chance that he would have ended up implicating others, which, I mean, he's not just, at the end of the day, he's not just saving his own name, he's also saving anybody that he declined to... Um, to name in the course of confessing. Sure, and he's also casting right. sort of doubt on the whole proceedings as a whole, um, which is good, like, in and of itself. Yeah, one of the one of the points that I got kind of stuck on, and this is a little quickie sidebar, but when the, um, when the, the judge at the end is like, if this is a false confession, I won't take it. And I'm like, but if it's a false confession, then you know he's not a witch. Yeah. Then what? <laughs> right. You have to because be... The, logic, time, right? the right. logic breaks down real fast, and obviously it's because witchcraft isn't real. But also it was like, if if you won't take his confession to witchery because it's false then aren't you admitting that he's wrongly imprisoned? That, what is going on? That's a fun logic it, breakdown, because it's not a problem with the story. It's a problem with 1697 Salem, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, like, uh, uh, no, I, know I, that's I actually not a... totally disagree. Really? 
I don't think, no, I don't think this is a religion thing. And I don't think this is a time thing. Like I, if you listen to Congress or if you listen to your general, like your state general assembly, like these kind of logic games still happen. And it's like, it is when you are either so married to a principle that you cannot conceive of another alternative. And so you are going to warp reality to match what you believe it should be, which like can happen more easily through religion because you're already thinking of alternative, but it, I think humans are very good at fitting what they want to be the truth to whatever circumstances showing them. And you can use some pretty effed up logic to get there. I don't know what you're talking about. And the past three years have not in any way convinced me that your point is at all salient. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess the ultimate point is that it's not a problem with the it's not a problem with the writing. Right, right. It's, like, it's, a, it's a problem Miller with, with is, humans. Miller is, in yes. fact, very accurately portraying uh, the the process. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> uh, the process of how we all become unvirtuous. Um, so that seems like a good segue to our final homework, which is Martha. Tell us about Dogma. Uh, so Dogma is a 1999 movie uh, directed by Kevin Smith, starring Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Linda Fiorentino. Uh, it is about two angels who were banished from heaven a zillion years ago, and through the shenanigans of a cardinal, I think? Or bishop, one of the two? Cardinal. He's a cardinal. Okay. Um, through the shenanigans of a, a cardinal and a rededication ceremony have discovered a loophole that will allow them to get back into heaven, but doing so will unmake reality because it will prove that God is not infallible. Uh, so in order to stop them, uh, Linda Fiorentino gets recruited by the voice of God to go on a, a pilgrimage to try and prevent them from entering the church. Um I love this movie, even if the logic in it breaks down a little bit, and also even if Catholicism doesn't actually work always the way that the movie uh, maintains that it does. Um, you're you're leaving out the part that this is a crazy stacked cast. George Carlin oh is the cardinal. A friggin' uh uh. Uh, Alan Rickman, R.I.P., is the voice of God. Alanis Morissette herself is God. Is God. Selma Hayek is in it. Uh, it's a Kevin Smith movie, so you got Jay and Silent Bob. Your mileage may vary there. Um, Chris Rock. Stacked cast. Who, and then Asriel. Who plays oh, um, Asriel? Jason Lee. Jason. I, I, I thought it was Ryan Reynolds for the first half of the movie. No, that would have been pretty great, though. Yeah. Um, I I have strong positive feelings about this movie because I think between the years 2002 and 2006 it was on repeat constantly on Comedy Central so like I had seen I don't know if I'd ever sat down and watched this movie from beginning to end but at various points I had seen every single scene like four times edited for TV with commercial interruptions also the angels were exiled to Wisconsin and the opening second opening scene is at the Milwaukee uh general mitchell airport so i sure was that (laughs) Um, yeah so i picked this movie i this movie was almost instantly like my first thought for this topic um and for a couple of reasons about making sure that i knew that you had claimed it (laughs) 
I because it felt so obvious to me as a as a discussion topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, one of the reasons is that Bartleby and Loki, the two angels, are convinced that they deserve to get back into heaven. Like they are convinced that they have served their time, um, and that they are in the right, even if by their actions existence is unmade. Um, and also, there is an incredible scene in the middle of the movie. So Loki, when he was an angel, was the angel of death. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so part of what he gets very excited about is bringing vengeance down upon the unworthy. So there is a scene in the middle of the movie where the two of them go to a boardroom of a company for a character called Mooby the Calf, who is a <laughs> very Disney esque. He's a very, yeah, he's a very Mickey Mouse type character. Uh, and after listing all of the sins of the various board members, including but not limited to uh, idolatry, lifting up this golden calf as a uh, as an uh, idol of worship, uh, Loki kills all of them <laughs> except one. Except the one, uh, the one innocent woman who actually I thought it was interesting that her participation in the idolatry didn't qualify her for uh, for vengeance, but but her I, failure I was, to say God bless you almost did. Almost did. <laughs> um, so you have this extremely bloody scene, completely induced by I think an overwrought sense of justice. Well, it's an Old what Testament they think sense. Is ju- yes, Old Testament justice. <laughs> Old Testament vengeance. Um, but that is based on weighing the virtue of people and finding them wanting. Which takes me back to where we were with the Crucible. Like, how do you measure how much virtue someone has? Is it enough? Is it more or less than someone else? Like, this is all very mysterious to me. <laughs> Well, and part of it, I think, is also one of the reasons that we all, in some way or another, ended up with religiously themed homework. Because a lot of what makes something virtuous is a sense of morality. And a lot of where we get our morality from, whether we are practicing or religious or not, a lot of our morality is very rooted or rather, I guess a better way to say it is a lot of our religion, and I use our in the general humanity sense, is rooted in morality. So this idea of being virtuous in and of itself is almost inherently religious. And and that being said, almost to, to flip both of those ideas on their heads, um, as I was watching this with, like, with the lens of virtue, I was really intrigued by... Um, especially Jay and Silent Bob, but also uh, Chris Rock's character Rufus the Apostle um, and and Bethany herself. Um, all of them are, like, I, I mean, Jay and Silent Bob are supposed to be prophets. Bethany is, like, the la- the scion of, of God or whatever. She's, like, the great-great-grandniece of, of Jesus through some Dan Brown nonsense. Um, but, like, they're all very much unwilling classic hero's journey type people jay and silent bob are horrible human beings uh but they're also serving a righteous cause so they're almost the inversion of like like you're talking about weighing virtue 
they're almost like they're terrible people, but they're doing the right thing. Um, they're not terrible people. Yeah, they're just people. Silent Bob is fine. Jay is a Jay's a scumbag. Jay is Jay is crass, but I, in the, in the context of the movie, he's not terrible. He doesn't do anything that's untoward. Right. Right. Ex- exactly. He's that, that's rude. Just propositions for sex immediately. <laughs> like, and and that's sort of what I mean. Like, he's he's not. Like he he's not a, a heroic type. He's not a he's not a role model, um, but he's still acting virtuously, or, or whether willingly or not, or knowingly or not. I mean, do you have to intend to be virtuous to be virtuous? I don't think so. I think you can try to be virtuous, but it's either it either comes naturally, I guess, or or it doesn't. But either way, if it comes naturally or if you have to make an effort to do it. I, it's almost like you can try to be virtuous and fail. And similarly, you can not try to be virtuous. Like, you know, not, not, not try to be anti-virtuous, but just like not make an effort um, and still well, be virtuous. Then I, guess, one of those... then I guess one of those I don't quite agree with. Um, if you try to be virtuous and fail, are you failing? If you like, how what does it look like to try to be virtuous and fail at it? I feel like part of this, like, are we being consequentialist or not? Right? Like, are you judged based on what effect your actions have? Are you judged based on your intent? Um, are you judged against a set of rules? Um, I watched Dogma with a friend, and afterwards he sent me an article on virtue ethics, which I hadn't heard of before. Um, Ooh, but can it, you send it, that to us and we'll link it in the, in the blog post. Yeah. Cool. I will indeed. And I'm even going to see if I can, if I still have it pulled up, um, because what it, what it was talking about with regard to virtue ethics as compared to consequentialists or deontology. Um, so it's like, if you're emphasizing the consequences of actions, that's your consequentialism. If you're emphasizing duties rules that's your deontology that's which is not a word that i knew before well, that makes sense yeah um and then the virtue ethics is like simply emphasizing your moral character which i was having trouble with of like what is your moral character if not your thoughts and your actions right like those two things combined would equal your moral character unclear but it seems relevant in in the sense of like can you try to be virtuous and be virtuous i get more hung up on like if you if you say you're virtuous i probably don't trust you Mm. like (laughs) actions speak louder than words yeah i'm finding it hard to envision a situation in which somebody could honestly try to be a good person and fail i i guess like it, it it, it, to, to me, it's, it would be sort of like the road to hell is paved in good intentions of, like, you're trying to do the right thing, but it has bad outcomes. Um, but then I don't know that I would... I, if the, How much in your control are those outcomes? Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally get where that road is leading. Because I, I do think a person can only be... Like, you can only control the things that you do you can't control like somebody's reaction to 
what you do, you can't control. You can't always foresee all of the consequences to something that you do. Um, I think that what we see in Peace Like a River is that when you have somebody who is doing the best that they can, like, that's a kind of virtue. What are, would you be talking about, like, Jeremiah there, or Davy, or... I think I'm kind of talking about Davy. Which does lead tangentially to one of the, the questions that I definitely think that we were, like, skirting around a little in this discussion, which is whether justice and virtue, like, how related are they? Um, or, or, or are well, they are the they related in is, our society? The problem is that justice is kind of relative. Uh, uh, sure, like... Isn't in, virtue? Well, I guess that depends on whether or not we agree that there are certain things that are just morally correct. It's where Davy breaks it down, right? Because he is he is acting to protect his family and yet killing in cold blood. And yet our sympathies are with him, or at the very least with his siblings who miss him dearly throughout most of it. And it's kind of your classic, like, oh, I guess there isn't a right answer. Well, I think that for me, the part where the part where Davy loses his, I guess, moral moral center is when he breaks out of jail, mm. because I I think there's an argument to be made for self defense in his but, act of killing the boys. But he like chose not to make that. There was some some throwaway line about like. The lawyer was like, we can say this. And Dave was like, nah. Like, because he's he's so self-centered and self-assured and strong in his own opinions that I think that sort of, like, gets him in trouble because he doesn't either see or care how, like, he is being perceived by others in a way. Right. right. It's so like he it's takes not... responsibility. Sorry. I was just going to say, it's not it's not his act of killing the boys it's everything that comes after that sort of condemns him for me <laughs> right um Although the can... phrase i'm thinking of is that he he takes responsibility for himself without taking responsibility for his actions or like for the consequences of his actions right like he 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 owns what he did and then he owns what he's going to do afterwards he's not He's not going to let a courtroom decide his fate for him. He goes. And there's an element, at least from Swede and Ruben's perspective, that perceives that as heroic. But it also means that, like, he's not going to see the boy's father mourning the loss of a son. And it means he's not going to he's not held accountable by a justice system that is designed to, however imperfectly, um, enforce rules. Yeah, and for me, he kind of loses his moral center when he kills the other kid. Um, like the, the, I don't know, the stooge. Tommy. Yeah, yeah, the, the less clearly, like, rabid of the two. The, the question about um, justice and virtue is interesting to me because, like, I want to say that justice is so relative, but then at that point so is virtue because we we clearly have i you know i'm thinking back to to dogma where we clearly have characters that think they're acting in a virtuous manner 
but we as the audience are are made to disagree with that. Mm-hmm. So then at that point, like, how do we how do we agree what it means to be virtuous? Which I guess is what is the the foundational question of most religions. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and most justice systems, right? Mm-hmm. Like we say, we, we allow for some measure of doubt, recognizing that the odds that we will know it with certainty are pretty slim. And yet there, there's, we have decided consciously, unconsciously to have some form of, um, of system in place such that it is not always going to be mano a mano one upping on one on each other, which is exactly what Davy and Israel and Tommy try to do. Well, so I would like to. Well, oh, sorry. Yeah, like you, what you just said about like how like that. How do we know what it means to be virtuous? How do we know what it means like what justice is, and how that's like the foundation of all religions? Um, like that's that's a big question of all religions. Definitely true, but also like most religions have come to like there's lots of disagreement but most of them have come down to like the golden rule at least as a touchstone um maybe not like mesoamerican religions so much but also i don't know a lot about their theology but like almost every other religion has that idea of like do unto others um as a part of it so that's at least one like, I think, firm place where we can stand when it comes to, like, what does virtue mean? Um, that that is one part of it. Uh, so a question I would like to introduce to our discussion mm-hmm. um, is why do these debate, like, why does this discussion matter? Uh, particularly when we're looking at... Um, pop culture in sort of a an academic sense like why is this discussion that we're having important and if i'm allowed to introduce a question and then also attempt to answer it in the same breath i i think that what we're talking about right now is what makes it important like this idea of working out what it means working out these ideas of like relativism and you know where where do we draw the lines? What what does virtue actually mean? Um, I I feel like not only are these questions important from a religious perspective, but also from a um, more academic pers- perspective. It gives us like these are these are almost thought exercises which give us space to work out what these what these things mean by by these in this case like these are thought exercises do you mean like dogma and the crucible and peace like river like these medias are themselves thought exercises yeah like the i mean pete you said yourself everyone reads the crucible in high school and part of it is that we all learned about communism but part of it is also that it gives us a space to discuss these kind of philosophical questions um so that we can, I guess, as a culture, decide what it means to be virtuous in a way that we can all kind of understand and digest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that, so that, 
I'm resisting and embracing that only because like there's a large part of me that really resists thinking of the arts and, you know, in their baser form pop culture as being didactic. Like that seems too simplistic. Um, and there's just so many layers there to peel back that it, to, to always boil it down to um, a moral or something that we're supposed to walk away with being better after, I think is often reductionist. But like, if I think about where I learned empathy, I learned empathy from reading all the time as a little kid and also from examples around me. Fine. But like the act <laughs> of reading or, or watching movies or TV shows is like, you're getting to ex- put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about what would it be like if I were in those shoes, what would I do? And it's both like a test of your own character of kind of like, I remember reading things and saying, okay, this is what it means. Like I admire this person being a hero in that situation. That means that I need to be ready to do that. And maybe I was just like a very serious young child, which is totally possible. But um, there was an element of learning through all that. In addition to like having having had access to many other worlds and people than I would have otherwise had growing up in suburban Philadelphia. Well, and I think that I think that a piece of media can ask, or I think that a piece of media can have a moral. Um, component. What's, what's no um. Angle. I'm just gonna start throwing out verbs and and nouns and adjectives. <laughs> what is so when when you read a fable? Moral. No, <laughs> a moral moral. Oh. <laughs> 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 um, I guess what I'm, what I'm building up to is. I, I don't think that a, a piece of media necessarily needs to be considered didactic just because it has like a, a moral theme or a moral point to it. I think that um, like something like The Crucible ha- definitely has um, a theme or um, definitely has... A, a specific thing that it is saying, but it also has a lot of other complex layers to kind of peel back. So I don't necessarily know that those two ideas are mutually exclusive. Because um, I do think that we frequently rely on pop culture to teach different points of view. Like like you like you said, Sarah, it's it's how people kind of gain an understanding and an empathy ideally uh, for points of view and walks of life that they don't otherwise have experience with. Cause I also think that um, stories are a way that we can see how morals and values have changed. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. I think that was the end of my sentence. Um, <laughs> Which, because they, I, I mean, they do like, like at the at the base of it, we all agree that killing people is bad. But like, puritanical morals were different from the ones that we practice today, and the way that we can kind of see that and see how those have evolved, um, and changed is like by not only by reading like primary document sources, but also by reading like stories that people were telling and. 
Um, we talked about this a little bit with our fairy tales episode, how frequently fairy tales had a lesson or a moral um, that was kind of based on the values of the society that the fairy tale came from. And I think that uh, while we'd like to believe that virtue is stagnant or not stagnant, but constant, um, I do think it is another one of those things where our perception of what makes a, a person virtuous does evolve with what our societal morals are over time. The thinking about how historical virtue, like historical virtues change. Number one, there's like a great shout out in dogma to that when you have these zillion year old angels referring to like, how do we even tell what's virtuous anymore? Like used to be, you couldn't eat these things. And now like adultery is happening in the backseat of the bus. Um, but it, the, the one like flip dark side that I was thinking of in preparation for this podcast and just thinking of like, what associations do I have with the word virtue? Um, are the ways in which that label has been used to subjugate. Mm. Um, and like, I think like the other, you know, the, the three things I think of in immediate reference to virtue are like references to religion. Fine. We've touched on that. Um, the phrase patience is a virtue. Fine. Mm. Um, and then like describing, and it's always a young woman describing mm. always a, vir a, woman. a virtuous young virtuous woman. woman. Yep. And what that actually meant Right. What that actually meant was like, we're going to put all sorts of controls on this person so that she cannot be a full human being. And then we're going to sell her on the basis of that, of that label. Um, and you're describing like watching how virtues change also made me think about ways in which like we have positive or negative associations with that word and how the word itself has been um, a tool for evil just as much as for good man talking about the idea of like virtue as a control is i think an entire other podcast in and of itself um there, there's <laughs> there's so much to go to go on on that um i actually yeah i i had some i had a notion about it when we were talking about the crucible but i honestly couldn't think of a way to connect it to our conversation about the crucible without feeling incredibly um, demeaning, mm. <laughs> but um, in well, just in what ju sense? Oh, just because I was thinking about um, how, because we we talked a little bit about use utilizing virtue as a weapon, and I think that that can cut both ways because you have it as the, the weapon that these that the people in the crucible are wielding against other people, but then you can also wield it. Um, it it's like a, a person's virtue can either be the weapon they wield or a weapon that is wielded against them. Like when John Proctor was, was trying to out himself as having slept with Abigail, like that would undermine yeah. all of Abigail's credibility. Like it, it would hurt problem, him, but it would really destroy her. The problem that I was having with making that point was that it is so frequently used against women and in the crucible I couldn't think of a way to, to make that point and also tie it into the fact that the primary 
antagonists in the crucible are young women Mm -hmm. so i wasn't sure that that was the right place for that discussion but like when you talk about a woman's virtue and how that becomes like a tangible and physical thing that can be lost and when it is lost the woman herself has lost value Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, I, 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 d- I don't know where I was going with that, except that our, our discussion has largely been about the positive connotations of virtue, and Sarah, you're absolutely right, it is also something that gets used in an incredibly negative way, mostly against women, mostly against young women, um, in a very puritanical but also continuing way. Like, I would say that the idea of a woman's virtue is very puritanical, it in a in a way that has lasted and continues in our society in a really gross way right so like regardless then of of you know virtue is is this two-sided sword i think that our three homeworks did a very good job at tackling it over time um granted they were all written in the past what like 50 years um but the Crucible is set during Salem. Um, Peace Like River is set in the 60s. Dogma is set in the late 90s. Uh, and I, I think that it has changed quite a bit over that time. Uh, and even just like, you know, Arthur Miller was writing in the 60s. So he's like, his Salem is also informed by that. Peace Like a River, Sarah, I guess that was written in 2001 about the 60s. So it's it's lensing that way. Um so we're we're hitting sort of different you you guys were talking earlier about how virtue has changed over time how the idea of virtue has changed over time um and I think that our three works sort of capture how that has been changing over time uh speaking of time, that's all the time we have for this week uh you can find the podcast at twitter at d y d y h podcast our home on the web, homeworkpodcast.com. Facebook, uh, just Facebook search for Did You Do Your Homework uh, podcast. And email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. You can Facebook us or email us or tweet at us any recommendations for homeworks, uh, topics, requests to be on the show, requests to shorten up the episodes, add better theme music, whatever. Uh, Drop us a line, tell us how we're doing. Speaking of... Do please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast, uh, and share it with your friends. As always, one of your homework assignments for the week is to share this podcast with somebody. Um, Sarah, do you want people to find you on the internet? And if so, where can you be found? Nope, I'm private to all. Cool. Uh, you you are one of the few people who is not simply, like, you are private, which is good. Many of our guests have no internet presence, which is even more audacious. <laughs> so. Unfortunately, I'm an attention hog, so you can find me on all social media at Magical Martha. And you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. P-I-K-O 3000. I follow them both, and they're delightful. Woohoo! Yay! I post a lot of photos on Instagram of my guinea pigs, which I think I say every episode, but they're adorable, so <laughs> I don't mind 
repeating information. Yeah. Sarah, thanks so much for being on this episode. Thanks for having me, guys. Great talking. Yeah. Martha, what are we doing next episode? Next episode, we are talking about post-traumatic stress disorder and its portrayal in popular culture. We are going to be joined by friend of the show, uh, Joel Kenyon, who is another one of my Pokemon that I'm collecting from the 40 Going on 14 podcast. Have we collected them I've... all after this episode that we will be collecting? Um, ex- I was going to say, except for my arch nemesis, yes. <laughs> um, Joel is assigning us the... Um, the 2012 film adaptation of Perks of Being a Wallflower. And I am assigning the first two episodes of season one of the Netflix show Jessica Jones. Uh, and I am assigning the 2015 film adaptation of Macbeth, starring Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, and directed by Justin Kurtzel. And all of Michael Fassbender's many teeth. Oh, it's it's such a good movie. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And uh, have a good time. I know how this show ends. Uh, I was going to sure say, you, you forgot your... how the show ends. <laughs> nope, nope. I, I, <laughs> I figured it out. Uh, make sure you do your homework. And we will talk to you in two weeks. Class dismissed. <laughs>